Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for May 2nd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. We have elections to discuss today. In about 15 minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on an interesting prosecuting attorney's race. We'll also hear Governor Asa Hutchinson's remarks that he made this weekend that he's investigating a possible run for the White House. And we begin with voter turnout in Arkansas. For our podcast, Natural Election, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth asked why we vote in lower percentages in Arkansas than any other state. So first off, a bit of good news. Voter turnout in the U.S. hit a record high in 2020 at nearly 67 percent. And Arkansans' electoral participation also ticked up by about 6.7 percent from 2016. Now, the bad news... That 54% turnout still puts Arkansas in last place for participation behind all 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. And on top of that, only 1.4 million of the state's 3 million population are registered to vote. That's all from a 2020 U.S. Election Commission report. So I sat down with Janine Perry, a political science professor at the University of Arkansas, to find out what's behind the low engagement. She explains the relatively high numbers we saw in the 2020 general election don't really translate to primary voting. And Arkansas in the last 10 years has typically been somewhere between 16 and 20 percent of eligible voters um, turning out in those primary elections. It doesn't matter whether it's t- like 2018 or this year, 2022, where almost all of the state level races are up, or whether it's a presidential election year, which tends to get ironically more people excited because it has actually less to do with our day-to-day lives. It doesn't really matter. It's low. And I mean, in looking at those numbers, I mean, you study voter behavior. What is it? Is it just that it's at a different time, there's not a lead up to it, a good lead up to it. Is it a marketing problem? What, what is it? <laughs> there seem to be a lot of factors in it. On the causal end of it, there seem to be a number of things that that are sort of happening at once. It's not like it's ever really been high. Partly seems to just escape the notice of a lot of people. We know that it happens many months in advance in most states. It happens many months in advance of the general election. So it 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 is kind of a marketing problem in that sense. And in fact, I was looking at a piece of research today that showed that summer primaries, even controlling for other factors, have higher, significantly higher voter turnout on average than states that have spring primaries. And the only thing that these authors were speculating is that it's just kind of closer when people think about elections traditionally. So if you are asking people to begin thinking about how they want government to run and which team they hope will win in July or August instead of in, you know, March, April or May, maybe they're more interested. Open primaries where you don't have to decide, you know, whether you feel like a Republican or a Democrat um, in advance of the election, but you can show up and participate. Those tend to have higher turnout, meaning instead of being 18 percent, you know, it's 23 percent. Hooray! Those are some of the, like, levers, you know, that people who are concerned about this know from looking at the available data we could push or pull uh, if we were trying to at least get modest increases. And but what are we seeing or, or what are we not thinking about when, when people don't show up for the polls? We're leaving it in the hands of other people who are hardcore partisans. When elections come to center on these primary elections 
and you have this really small group of people participating in those primary elections, the people who emerge, the candidates who emerge out of those primaries tend to be more polarized in their views. So in the end, when they sail through the general election against no or very weak competition from the other party, they go into the legislature already thinking typically about whether or not somebody might in their party try to tackle them next time. So they have, in fact, a disincentive to compromise and an incentive to be as kind of inflammatory to the point of being incendiary as they can, because they need to, again, that concept of virtue signaling is really useful. But they need to display their credentials inside that one party. Those are the people they need for the for the vote. And then it, there are people who track, like we do on the Arkansas poll, they use state-level polling to try to figure out, like, well, what does the average voter want? What the average voter wants is not all that different from what the average voter wanted 10 or 20 years ago, but it's quite different now from what the average legislature is producing. So if we want relatively low tax rates, but also fairly robust public services for kids and old people and people without health care, that's not what we've incentivized on the right at all in those in those primary in those primary elections. What's the remedy for that? A lot of us are focusing on campaign finance reform. Um, a few of us are focusing on nationalization and the decline uh, of local media and what's that what that's doing to voter turnout and polarization and the way that all kind of spirals together uh, and there may just institutional reform we were set up as many of your listeners will know to give the minority point of view a lot of weight in our institutions particularly our national institutions so a handful of states, can change the outcome of a presidential election via the Electoral College. They can hold up legislation that 60, 70 percent of Americans say they want, depending on how you ask the question, because of the supermajority procedural elements in the U.S. Senate. So there probably would need to be some like major institutional constitutional type changes, although ironically, the way you would do that would be through the very states that are getting their way <laughs> right now because of the way those institutions are crafted to um, protect the minority's point of view. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, you know, kind of going back to the, the campaigning and the marketing aspect, but in-person campaigns, people going to maybe community events. I mean, for the past two years, you haven't been able to have community events where a lot of campaigning used to happen. I mean, are we seeing that disappear Not just with COVID, but in general. Yes. 2014 was the end of personalism in Arkansas politics, which stayed here longer than almost any other state. While all the other states had these glossy TV ads and you could sort of plug and play these national sinners and saints Mm -hmm. and then... Um, these really big national organizations would come in with a script and, you know, some B-roll film and uh, they could make or break, you know, a local candidate. And you don't have to have ever met that candidate. You know, that candidate doesn't have to do really anything other than be on TV all the time when the boomers are watching it and say things they like. And that messaging was happening. Arkansas candidates were unusual in that it was very hard to do ad buys here because we didn't have a big 
metropolitan area like Atlanta. So I actually remember doing a study in 2002 uh, with my friend Jay Barth down in central Arkansas, and we were going around to the commercial television stations, and they're required um, under federal law to give us their ad buy data. So anyway, we were going around and we were also interviewing people who were active in the 2002 U.S. Senate race between Tim Hutchinson and Mark Pryor. And of course, Mark Pryor upset Tim Hutchinson, a Democrat upset a Republican in that race. What people told us over and over again, the allies of the parties, the national parties, the state parties, the candidates themselves, the interest groups who were involved in all the spending, they're like, we hate buying ads in Arkansas because you have to buy ads in like six markets, six small media markets in order to cover even 80% of likely voters. You got to buy in Louisiana, you got to buy in Missouri, you got to buy in Oklahoma, you got to buy in Mississippi, you got to buy in Tennessee, and you have to buy in Arkansas. And it's really expensive for us to do that. So Arkansas candidates were continuing to shake hands and kiss babies. And they were going down to the Gillette Coon Supper, and they were going to Hope to eat watermelons. And they were just like still having to talk about who their, you know, who their mom, you know, went to college with, you know, up there in Fayetteville or whatever it was. So that friends and family plan was still in full operation, retail politics. But in 2010, that all started to just crumble. And by 2014, you might recall that um, Tom Cotton, who was really just a, a very junior member of the U.S. House, ended up taking out Mark Pryor on the yeah. Democratic side. And it's probably a bigger deal that Mark was a prior than that he was a Democrat at that point. And Cotton really didn't have to go to any of the festivals. He didn't have to march in the parades. He just had to be on TV and shout. Obamacare and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and, you know, whoever, he could just make any Democrat, even a prior, wear those albatrosses around his neck. And that was it. Game over. So that was that marked like the bookmark of the full nationalization of Arkansas politics. That's sort of playing into who is voting. So what does the voter look like? The people who are turning out for these elections for the primaries in Arkansas. Who is that voter? That voter is older. That voter is whiter. That voter often has more income, if not more education, than is the average. And that voter is just more conservative. I try so hard to get my state politics students to consider, and my American national government politics even, you know, the freshmen. I know y'all are real interested in Bernie Sanders, right? That tends to be the way students are facing right now. They're always oppositional to whatever the power was, and they came of age during the Trump administration, and they only focus on national politics and only, only focus on the executive branch. That's all really interesting. But because you guys are sitting out these off-year elections, and certainly because you're sitting out these primaries, you're really ceding all kinds of power, actual policymaking power, to people who look closer to the way I look um, than the way you look. So it really doesn't matter. Even if you were able to elect a Bernie Sanders, you would still get your you would still leave your state legislature to be, as most state legislatures are, at least 60-40 Republican Democrat. And they would be the ones who make abortion regulation, gun regulation, climate, you know, related regulation. All the things that Bernie Sanders can't fix and Elizabeth Warren can't fix, you know, and and all these things that you all, I know, are so passionate about right now. Uh, But it's just real hard to get their attention and for them to see how much they have ceded, you know, to to these regular voters. So that contracting and expanding of the electorate is, is, I think, the thing that's producing 
um, this sort of weird sense that, but we all went out and voted and they're still in charge and we're not getting the policies we want. You're going to have to vote every time. And I mean in so-called off-year elections for sure, because that's when most of those state things are up, those state positions. And you're going to have to vote in primary elections. Until then, um, you know, the boomers are just going to continue to show up and the politicians they elect are going to ask, are going to give them more and more and more of what they want and not what you want. Daniel Carruth talked with Janine Perry for our Natural Election podcast. A new episode will be released tomorrow. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has confirmed he is eyeing a run for the presidency. The governor said that's one of the reasons why he attended Politics and Eggs in New Hampshire last week, which is considered a must-stop for presidential hopefuls. Speaking on CNN's State of the Union Sunday, the governor said the situation at the southern border with Mexico is one of the issues motivating his potential run for president. Border security is such an incredible issue. That's what the kind of thing that I'm passionate about whenever... Uh, You look at we need to have Title 42 or some equivalent to it. Secondly, we've got to go after the cartels in a more vigorous fashion. Uh, And then thirdly, we've got to support the states in, in the role that we play. So there's much to be done there. I care about those issues. And so, yes, I'm going to be engaged this year and hopefully beyond that. In 2021, the governor formed the America Strong and Free Political Group as a way to fundraise, shape public debate, and support candidates. The governor is term-limited and unable to seek re-election as governor. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphererefestival.org. The elaborate entrance of Chad Deity slams onto the stage at Theater Squared. This comedy, a mixture of professional wrestling, spectacles, and geopolitical allegory, is on stage and streaming now through May 8th, 777-7477, or theater2.org for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. Among choices some voters in our area have later this month, Stephen Coger is challenging incumbent 4th Judicial District Prosecuting Attorney Matt Durrett in the May 24th nonpartisan election. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Matt Durrett serves as 4th Judicial District Prosecuting Attorney for Washington and Madison Counties responsible for several thousand felony, juvenile, and misdemeanor cases brought annually by county law enforcement agencies. The West Memphis native has served in the office for 23 years, first as deputy prosecuting attorney, senior deputy, and chief deputy prior to being elected prosecuting attorney in 2015. And he aims to keep that job. I I really enjoy this job. It's a job I've when I started in this office back in September of 1998, and I was told by a couple of lawyers, other lawyers, um, private lawyers, uh, ones in, in civil law, practicing civil law, they uh, came in, gave me the advice of, you know, stay in there a few years, get, you, get, get some experience, and then get out and get a real job. Um, what I learned over those years is that, uh, for lack of a better term, this is this is kind of a calling, and 
Um, it's it's a place where you can you can really do some good. Durrett says he's on call 24/7, often working 10 hours a day on cases. We work with with defense attorneys and we work with um, the probation and drug court and everything else to to try to help those individuals too. Those individuals who, uh, but for the the cycle of addiction, could be leading a normal and productive life and. Um, we play a part in that cycle. We play a little bit, a, a little piece in there, but it's something that is really good. I've had um, people come up to me who I did not recognize, but they told me that I had been a prosecutor on their case, uh, a hot check case or a drug case uh, X number of years ago. And I, uh, I gave them a second chance, which I mean, I really didn't. It's a judge giving them a second chance, but they viewed me as giving them a second chance. And they turn their lives around. The pandemic shutdowns, Durrett says, created a huge backlog of cases. He and staff continue to process. The vast majority, he says, are drug possessions or drug-related. But property theft cases are rising, he says, as well as failure to appear. Individuals not showing up for court. The lower-level violent offenses from battery second to the domestic battery, aggravated assault, um, terrorists are threatening those D felony level um, that are uh, causing physical injury to people, threatening to, to kill people, whatnot, that I, I don't want to, I, I hate saying low level because they're violent offenses, but uh, in the range of criminal offenses, they're on the lower end of, of, the, uh, of the felony scale. But we get a lot of those, too. Durrett's key legal staff, he proudly says, were instrumental in establishing the National Child Protection Task Force, focused on deploying best practices to apprehend child traffickers and solve missing persons cases. He also is a member of the Washington County Criminal Justice Coordinating Committee, which includes judges, public defenders, mental health professionals, and community representatives. Uh, that is a, a a group of individuals who are involved in the criminal justice system, who are working to see if there are, all, are alternatives to expanding the jail. Washington County Sheriff Tim Helder, who's retiring, has led an effort for several years to greatly expand the chronically overcrowded county detention facility, estimated to cost $23 million, paid for with a temporary sales tax, but Durrett has been investigating establishing a mental health court to divert detainees diagnosed with mental illness from incarceration. He also wants to establish a pretrial service program. Uh, it's a program where an individual can, who, who poses no danger to the community, in on a nonviolent offense and perhaps a failure to appear, and where they can't bond out, where they can be released under supervision and and then what we're trying to do when we set this up is to is to partner with other nonprofits that can provide services for these people, um, whether it be uh, drug treatment, job training, mental health treatment, because what we're trying to do with the pre it's, it's really three things um, is one, make sure they show up for court. two make sure they don't reoffend before court and three, get them on the road to recovery before court. Durrett, who's run unopposed previously, is now facing Fayetteville attorney Stephen Colger, age 37, a well-known criminal justice reform advocate.
Koger, who's litigated cases in Arkansas District, Circuit, and Federal Courts, operates a nonprofit law firm serving children survivors of sex trafficking and abuse, as well as individuals who are labor trafficked. For seven years serving these, these young survivors, I've seen too often the uh, perpetrators of violence not face consequences or not face sufficient consequences. And I think that relates back to the priorities that a prosecutor's office has. And that was my true deep initial motivation for deciding to run. Koger says he's familiar with the district for which he seeks to be elected. I have a certain degree of cultural literacy, being from rural Arkansas. My granddad was from Madison County, and so we've got certain family connections there. And I've lived in Fayetteville since 2003. Since 2015, I've been managing a nonprofit that we now have a budget of over a million a year, over 20 people on the staff and, and contractors and interns. Colger is referring to Arkansas Immigrant Defense, a bilingual nonprofit legal service based in Springdale for immigrants and refugees. If elected, he says, he and his staff will focus on the needs of his district's most vulnerable victims while working proactively to stop crime before it's committed. And I am ready to tackle this responsibility of making sure that uh, the prosecutor's office is prioritizing those cases that need prioritizing across Madison and Washington County. Community outreach, Koger says, will be a key part of his job. You know, I met with the police chief in Fayetteville recently, and, and he was telling me about this huge fight at Ramey Junior High a few weeks ago. And I thought, well, if I were already in my future job as prosecutor, I would meet with every parent, every student that I could and just see what is, what is the issue. Koger says he'll work to channel more low-level offenders with substance use disorders into the district's drug and workforce diversion court system and not criminalize recreational drug users to reduce chronic jail overcrowding. Something that happens with my opponent's office is that recreational drug users are put into drug court. So you've been caught with marijuana. You're not a harm to anybody. You're not a threat to anybody. We're clogging up. We're taking up space from someone who has an actual addiction who could be getting the actual important treatment and accountability that drug court provides. Three years ago, while serving as director of the Arkansas Justice Collective, Koger co-published a report titled A Myth of Progress, Marijuana, Racial Discrimination and Injustice in Fayetteville. The report sourced police department data at the time, finding marijuana arrests had increased by over 280 percent, despite a population increase of only 13 percent. He found that African Americans disproportionately accounted for 37 percent of felony marijuana arrests, yet comprise only 7 percent of the population. The number of folks who uh, have been arrested or placed in criminal proceedings uh, because of marijuana went down uh, big time after a report was published a few years ago, highlighting the disparity in arrests. If elected chief prosecutor, Koger says he will have different priorities when it comes to misdemeanor crimes. And our priorities for misdemeanor court are going to be domestic violence. It's going to be drunk driving. It's not going to be just criminalizing every taillight that's out and trapping people in these perpetual cycles of fines and fees. Koger also says if he's elected, expansion of the Washington County Jail won't be necessary. And there's tons of really great data that show if we had a program called Justice-Involved Justice Supportive Housing, that we would save millions a year 
while supporting people to get the healing and the treatment that they need and, and having help with rent, uh, having a case manager. These are the things that a prosecutor needs to be proactively offering. Koger says if he's elected, he will also work to establish a mental health court and a pretrial services program. The nonpartisan general election for the 4th Judicial District prosecuting attorney is May 24th. The position pays over $170,000 per year over a four-year term. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And our coverage of politics and elections continues tomorrow on Ozarks at Large as we have excerpts from our podcast, Natural Election, including a conversation about primaries and how they work. The podcast is available tomorrow through all podcast distributors. And our podcast, Resilient Black Women, gaining national attention. The most recent episode about grief was this week's editor's pick for NPR One. You can hear all of the Resilient Black Women episodes right now. And you can find out more about all of our podcasts at KUAF.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is... Ozarks at Large. In late September, a new festival called Format will make its debut just outside of Bentonville. Format will be a three-day music, art, and technology event featuring the likes of Herbie Hancock, visual artist Nick Cave, and on-site camping. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke to two of the producers of Format about the inspiration and expectations of the inaugural festival. From the folks who produce large-scale music festivals like Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits, we have a new American music festival on an airstrip just outside of Bentonville. In late September, Format will bring together over 80 live music acts, two dozen visual and performance artists, and much more just five minutes from the square. Despite the grandeur of its festival siblings, C3 Presents co-founder Charles Attell says Format is considered a boutique festival, not nearly to the scale of ACL or Lala. I mean, we do Lollapalooza in Chicago for 100,000. Austin City Limits is 75,000. You know, this is, this is a curated event that's targeted. So we're, it's a target audience. Um, it's the art curious. You don't necessarily have to be an art collector or, or an art dealer or you just have to be curious in, in visual art and so that that's who our audience is who we're going after we also want the the, the curious music fan we have a lot of uh european bands uh, on the bill we have djs from europe we ha- it's a it's more eclectic than a normal lineup you'd see out there lizzie edelman is another collaborator involved in format who says the inspiration for the festival was to place art and music as equals We had this kind of dream vision for what we wanted to build, but we didn't have the site for it. And so when we started to learn more about Bentonville and what was happening in Northwest Arkansas and hearing about it being coined as kind of the new Austin and growing quickly, we were amazed by what sort of the community and the landscape, what was happening to the community and landscape with it evolving so quickly. And I think that paired with what we've seen with this next generation of Waltons and what they've been investing in around art and culture in the region and bringing that to the masses has been incredible to see and and pairs very well with sort of the vision and the intention of what this festival is. Lizzie, you talked a little bit about collaborating with the Waltons. How did that relationship start? Did, you know, did Stuart Walton just give you a call and say, hey, let's bring a music festival here? How does that how does that relationship begin? Actually, Olivia, um, Tom's uh, wife, um, I've known for a long time and um, have been 
kind of watching what she's been doing in the community with the momentary um, and been really inspired by how she's partnered with the museums, especially under the leadership of what Alice Walton has done there over many decades now. And I think it kind of initially was that touch point, but then, you know, through getting to know Tom and Stuart and Stuart's wife, Kelly, and hearing about the unbelievable amount of dedication that they have to Northwest Arkansas and what they're trying to bring to that part of the country. From there, we started to have conversations, tell them about what this show was. They are very focused on art and art is a central piece of this show. So it felt like a good fit. You know, I think they were just as excited about what a festival could do in supporting their already impressive strategies for this area. And we were excited about the demand that we felt the region had for music and that, you know, there wasn't anything like this that exists, I think, anywhere in the U.S., but definitely nothing that exists in this part of the country. How do you decide, you know, when you're when you're starting a brand new festival, it's not Austin City Limits. It's not Lollapalooza. This is a very different feel of a festival. Is there pressure when you think about putting out that lineup for an inaugural music festival? Yes. And I will say that they did a heck of a job. And I will tell you why I think it works so well is you throw Lizzie's team, which I know very well, and they're 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 very savvy in the music space uh, to, to our team who's also very savvy in the music space in a different way. Cause they're, they're, they're talent buyers and Lizzie's team is on the artistic side and you throw them all in a room and they battle it out. <laughs> and this is what came from sitting in a room with six people curating together. And, and it's rare to have different walks of life coming in to curate an event. And, and it was funny because they're all, friends now, but at first everybody's kind of, you know, vying for position and everybody's a little bit getting their egos bruised on what the other one likes and doesn't like. And, and, uh, I played a little bit of referee early on, but now they're, they're close friends and, and this is what came out of it. And I really enjoyed the process. It was very collaborative, but it was also, it was very heated, you know, not, not, not in a nasty way, but in a way of debate, there was a lot of debate that went into it and a lot of time, probably a, a year and a half. A year and a half, of pa- a lot of passion, a lot of time, a lot of... A lot of late night calls. A lot of late night calls. I mean, I think Charles and I are both extremely proud of this lineup. It's special. Not to say that there aren't amazing other festival lineups out there, but I think this one in particular really speaks to that process that Charles just talked through. And it it does shine a light on musicians that some people have never heard of from different corners of the world. You know, we have salsa bands coming in from Colombia. We have um, African bands coming in from the Congo. We have, we have jazz musicians, we have opera singers, and and a lot of them are then embedded into some of the performances and the art pieces that you're going to see on site. Yeah, Fat Boy Slim playing in a barn. <laughs> yeah, we have Fat Boy Slim playing in a barn. Exactly. I, no, that's another point that we were able to get these artists to play on non-traditional stages. So one thing that makes this festival really special is that you have two main stages. You have the main stage and the side stage, but then your other five stages are being created in partnership with artists. Um, and so you know, we have one that's out in the forest um, that's called Smokies. We have this barn that Charles is referring to um, that's going to have uh, that's going to be completely done up on the inside by um, an artist named Maurizio Catalan in Toilet Paper Magazine. The experience for the attendee is very curated in, in everything that you touch while you're on that site. Another element of format is working to make this festival not just in northwest Arkansas, but for and by northwest Arkansas as well. 
Yeah, it's been really important to us from the beginning that we don't feel like we're coming in and just coming in for three days and plopping this festival down. We want to build this with the community. And that's been our message from day one. And we've been really grateful to the Waltons um, and our partners on the ground and helping connect us with who those right organizations are, whether it be cash or local restaurants, um, fabricators that have been working on stage design and things like that. Um, And we want the town to feel proud of this. The hope and the intention is over the years that this isn't a place where people just come and sit on the festival site that they spend time in Bentonville, they spend time in Fayetteville, they spend time in Springdale, they get out in Northwest Arkansas into the trails on their bikes, move around, see what the Ozarks has to offer. Yeah, like we we want our, our show to definitely be a driver in bringing more people to the region, but we don't want people to just be on the site. So we have um, on the music lineup already, I think we have 10 local musicians that are being represented um, that were booked in. Um, We're also speaking with, as I said, local fabricators or artists that can work with some of the bigger name artists that are coming to town. So one of the things that we had talked to Cash with about early on is how we can give some local artists that experience to work with um, producers on a big event like this. One of the things still in the works is the food and beverage side of things. We are hopefully going to get a few big, bigger name chefs involved. The culinary experience is very important to us, but we have an amazing guy on Charles's team who curates a lot of the food for some of their other festivals. And we've been putting out information to local restaurants and chefs to get involved. Um, There's a lot of farm to table component in and around Bentonville. And so um, that will also be something that we'll start to roll out. And of course, like any good festival, they still have a few more tricks up their sleeves. A lot of fun surprises, too, that we'll be announcing over the next six months. Just really cool uh, add-ons to the fest that I'm excited about. So stay tuned. That was Charles Detell, co-founder of C3 Presents, and Lizzie Edelman, founding partner of Triadic. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. The Razorback softball team will at least share the regular season SEC title. The Razorbacks clinched at least a tie when they swept South Carolina at Bogle Park this weekend. To clinch the regular season outright, Arkansas just needs to win one of three games this approaching weekend at Texas A&M. The SEC tournament will begin Tuesday the 10th. The Razorback baseball team remains in first place by two games in the SEC West after taking two of three games at Bomb Stadium this weekend from Mississippi. Up next, home game against Missouri State tomorrow night. Applications for the next round of Artist 360 grants are being accepted. Artist 360 provides grant funding and professional development for artists in all media in five Arkansas counties. Sebastian, Washington, Crawford, Carroll, and Benton. Grants in the amounts of $7,500, $15,000, and $25,000 will be awarded. More details at artist360.art. And Brad Wimberly of Ozark, among the inductees in the Arkansas Outdoor Hall of Fame class of 2022. Wimberly moved to Arkansas in 1980, purchased Turner Bend store a year later, and is a co-founder of the Mulberry River Society. The Arkansas Outdoor Hall of Fame will host a banquet honoring all of the inductees in August in Little Rock. We have the experience of our volunteer agencies in uh, providing sponsors for refugees. We'll provide uh, enough sponsors that uh, we'll be able to assimilate the uh, Vietnamese into our society. This is a continuation of sorts. I'll tell you that Randy Dixon with the Dave and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History is with me in the studio. And Randy, last week we talked about April 1975. That's right. So I wanted to dig up and see what happened just the following month. That this being May, we could talk about May of 1975. By the way, 
Hello, Kyle. Hello, Randy. Thanks, Thanks for having me again this week. Thanks for coming in. So yeah. we're going to do the sequel to last week. What did we just hear? Well, that was a uh, military spokesman at Fort Chaffee. So the last day of the month in April of 75, as we talked about last week, uh, was the fall of Saigon. Well, within three weeks, uh, refugees started to arrive in the United States, and many of them, as thousands of them, were at Fort Chaffee in northwest Arkansas. Right, and it became a major national, international, of course, uh, statewide story. And um, the governor of Arkansas at the time was David Pryor. That's right. And, you know, he had three weeks' notice yeah. Uh, just like the military and uh, anyone else. And so uh, he, w- he was real good about updating uh, the press and in that way updating the public on what was going on. And this was in the first few days of the refugees arriving. We, we're indi- indicating now a, a population there at the peak point of some 24, and I don't think more than 27, 25,000. Uh, but it's, it's quite a burden to bear, but uh, everyone there is in good spirits. I talked to Donald McDonald from the State Department this morning. He thinks things are well under control. We have representatives of the State Health Department there on the scene this morning. In fact, Dr. Rex Ramsey, the director of the State Health Department, is at Chaffee this morning making certain that all precautions are being are being carried out and, and met. That's Governor David Pryor, KATV. Of course, it's the KATV archives that are being digitized for the Pryor Center. Uh, one of the archives from May 1975 is heartbreaking. This yes. conversation with a, a recently transplanted refugee. That's right. She had just moved into the barracks and uh, spoke English, had come from Vietnam, although there were uh, refugees from the entire region, uh, Laos and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. and uh, But this is a young lady who had just been transplanted uh, across the world and this was the situation she was explaining to uh, KATV. Is your family here? Oh, no. They're still in Saigon. If you could go back, would you? Mm, yes, I hope someday I can go back there. Do you have anyone here who you will live with? Oh, my husband here. He's in uh, Pennsylvania. When do you think you'll be leaving for there? Oh, I call him, but uh, it's no answers when I, he told me when I have everything done, I mean, take care of people done, and I call him again, and he will come over here and pick me up. Her parents still in Saigon. She can't reach her husband in Pennsylvania. And you think about that, that was 47 years ago, but there are people from Ukraine and Afghanistan and all around the world that are in similar situations today. That's true. And, mm. you know, you think about the modes of communication right? then and now. Yeah. She, she was saying that no one was answering the phone. You know, there were no cell phones. I'm, I'm surprised she even knew where to call. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he was in, didn't she say Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. That's right. I would love, I, there's probably no way on earth to find this out. I would love to know what happened to that woman. I know. Mm. I know. 47 years ago. Uh, J.W. Fulbright, former Arkansas senator. Well, he had just been defeated. Right. Uh in November and had left office right. uh, in January of 75. But here but, he is talking about the end of the Vietnam War. 
It's all over now. We're not arguing about the merits of it. I think there's no reason for us to be too depressed about our present situation. We ought to feel a great relief that that's over. That chapter is closed, I, except for some tail ends, but it's closed for, the, for practical purposes. And that means we are in a position now, I think, to reorganize our thoughts, to fo refocus our, our attention upon a great many matters that have been neglected during these last 25 years, 20, 25 years, and to reassess our own role as a country. And I see no reason why we can't play a very important role and why we can't resume the kind of progress internally that we enjoyed prior to this very sad uh, period. Well, you can't mention J.W. Fulbright's Senate seat, former Senate seat, without talking about the person who had just taken it over. Dale Bumpers. Yeah. And he visited uh, Fort Chaffee, and um, he had his thoughts on the situation, um, being, you know, a representative of Arkansas in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and this is a report from KETV's Tom Newberry. Relocation camp life remains, for the most part, uneventful at Fort Chaffee. Some of the refugees have already obtained civilian sponsors, but most of the refugees remain here waiting on word of their future. We started to put an amendment on the bill in the Senate uh, to make certain that uh, any, any excess was not spent for any other purpose. And any money left over after the refugee problem is solved will revert back to the Treasury. Now, in my opinion, uh, we have appropriated more than uh, more than ample amount. So you had mentioned that this happened relatively quickly. And in, Very quickly. And in relative time, the population at Fort Chaffee next to Fort Smith really grows. Well, it went in 22 days. There were suddenly 26,000 refugees in Fort Chaffee, which, by the way, made it the 11th largest city in the state. In 1975, yeah. Yeah, and by the end of the year, they had processed uh, 50,000 uh, mm. refugees through the fort, through the camp. Um, so I wanted to check back in because later in the month, KTV talked to Governor Pryor about the progress. So this is from uh, late May of 75. Basically get an overview of the situation now. We're about at the peak of the population here at Chaffee. And just trying to get a general viewpoint of how things are going, health conditions, water supply, et cetera. And I'd like to, again, compliment the gentleman in charge here, uh, General Cannon, Donald McDonald, and they've just done a splendid job, they and their staff. We're also anticipating looking at the, the school, where we understand some 6,000 refugees are already enrolled in school. That school has been activated. It has been activated and staffed by volunteers. There was other news happening besides um, the placement of refugees at Fort Chaffee. Right. Last week, we talked about the, the scandal with Wilbur Mills, congressman mm -hmm. from the 2nd District, and he was, had, was caught up in a sex scandal with a stripper. Yes. But he, uh, as a result of that, admitted his problems with alcohol, his mm -hmm. alcoholism, and in that report we heard last week, he had left Congress 
temporarily. He had been reelected, but he had gone to Florida to a rehab facility uh, to clean up. And by this time, in May of 75, he's back up in D.C., and he uh, called a news conference in his office and was really candid about the importance of remaining sober. As I've said on many occasions, I'm not going to be in any job uh, where I find that it's not going to be possible for me to retain my sobriety. That's the important thing for me is to remain sober. And if I can't do it, continuing in Congress, I'll just quit. Now, if I find I can, uh, then I would answer the question later on about whether I would run for another term or not. How are you finding yourself working with the other congressmen right now? Oh, it's just there's no difference in their attitude at all. Uh, they, they used to come to me about their problems, and I noticed since I've been back, they're doing the same thing, but I'm not as uh, prone to be of assistance to them yet. I don't feel up to it. I feel fine physically, but... Uh, I was told earlier that it would take me longer to uh, regain uh, my full mental faculties. Main, uh, primarily, it's a matter of remembering and one of the uh, length of time that I can concentrate without being tired. It's hard to imagine 47 years later that a current congressman or senator who had been caught ensnared in a similar situation would voluntarily call people to a press conference. I just don't think it would happen. It's even harder to imagine that you're about to hear a Republican talk about a Democrat in crisis the way we're about to hear this. Well, and this was not a typical Republican. When when you look at John Paul Hammerschmidt, he was, I don't know of any Republican today you could compare him to. Now, they were from the states, the same state delegation. Yes. And John Paul Hammerschmidt was— And they were a, friends. Yes. And John Paul Hammerschmidt was the lone Republican in right. a very Democratic state. Right. But, but still— he, he still got along yeah. uh, on both sides of the aisle. But this is what he had to say about Mills and uh, his removal or possible removal from office. Well, I just saw it, and of course, I wouldn't comment on the resolution. It was done by a party executive committee. Naturally, they have party feelings about it. Uh, Actually, that question is up to the uh, people of the 2nd Congressional District, I would assume, in the next election. Do you think Congressman Mills should resign? Well, he's back in Washington and seems to be looking well and seems to be performing very well. And uh, I don't know that I should comment on that. I believe that he could perform a very useful service yet, and, and he's still considered a leader in the Ways and Means Committee. So, Let's go back to Senator Dale Bumpers. Yes. Over the years, there was always talk about the possibility of him becoming president, especially in the 80s, and even leading up to Bill Clinton's mm-hmm. nomination in, in 92. Right. Uh, but I had forgotten that even back in the 70s, when he was a freshman uh, senator, there I was mean, talk of him. barely a freshman senator, too. He had been in office for a few months. Mm-hmm. And there's already talk of, will he run for president? So here's part of a report from John Hudgens, who went to Washington for KTV. Arkansas's freshman Senator Dale Bumpers does not rule out the possibility that by the 1976 Democratic Convention he might try to exert some power and influence. On the idea of being president, he still is rather noncommittal. I just almost 
consistently refused to even talk about it because I don't have any plans. Uh, as you know, I don't have any organization, and uh, I'm not planning any organization. But I have consistently said if I should make the decision to run for president, I just make it. Uh, I recognize the overwhelming odds against uh, being successful, but I've uh, I've come up against overwhelming odds many times in my lives, in my life, and uh, that would not be that would not be a sufficient deterrent to keep me from doing it if I decided that it was in the best interest of the country for me to do it. This speculation persisted for a long time. There is a cover of a 1984, 83 or 84 Rolling Stone. Dudley Moore's on the cover, but the headline atop, across the top says, Dale Bumper's The Great Dark Horse. Yes. I mean, Rolling Stone was saying that he was going to be the guy who might get well, the Well, and there was talk at the California Democratic Convention that year, I w- was there with Steve Barnes for KATV because he was the star of the convention. There was that much talk about him running for president. So let's switch a little bit. Okay. Let's go with sports. Yes. You know, it, we're, we're about to hit a random bag of things <laughs> I love that, this. that happened in, in May of 75. All right. Billy Moore. Uh, if you talk early 60s Razorback. Football, mm-hmm. his name is there everywhere. Yes, uh, quarterback, all American, and um, he was in the first recruiting class of Coach Frank Broyles. So, and I don't know what this event was. He's in a tux. I wonder because seventy five isn't that about the time Frank Broyles transitioned to solely being AD. Yes, I wonder if it was some uh, sort it, of banquet honoring. But it's his, all. But when you hear this, yes. it almost sounds like a roast. Yes, and he's in a tuck, so it could have been a, a, a roast for Frank Broyles. But here is uh, former Razorback quarterback, uh, All American Billy Moore, talking about Frank Broyles. I never will forget the statement he he said out there, and he was telling all of us freshmen. And of course, I I was fortunate enough to be on a. A, a real good freshman football team, and and he he made the statement that always stuck in my mind. He he looked out at all of us freshmen, and there must have been forty or fifty of us, and he said, "Boys, I want y'all to all look around at each other." He said, "Because at the end of this year, he said only half of you'll be left." <laughs> well, you know, uh, Coach Royal's first uh, year at the University of Arkansas, he lost his first six games. So I was kind of questionable about whether he was going to be there longer than I was. There was a lunar eclipse Mm -hmm. uh, in May of 75, which was called the Eclipse of the Decade. But why was it called that? Well, you're about to find out because KATV thought it was such a big deal that they went and talked to Dr. Clay Sherrod of the Arkansas Sky Observatories the day of the event to find out why it was called that. Well, the lunar eclipse starts about 11 o'clock, or as a matter of fact, right at 11 o'clock tonight. And um, what we'll see is the uh, shadow of the Earth gradually covering up the moon from the southeast quadrant of the uh, moon's surface. And about uh, 12.03, the shadow will completely cover the moon until about 1.30 in the morning. Uh, Weather permitting, observers will be able to see the moon gradually change from the bright white yellow that it normally is to a very uh, low orange or dark brown color. We're not too sure yet what the color is. And uh, stars will begin popping out if the haze is not too high. 
and we'll be able to see a lot of uh, um, stars that normally are not seen during uh, full moon time. Why do they call this the eclipse of the decade? Well, for several reasons. The, we had an eclipse back in 1972, which was nice, but uh, it was very low on the western horizon. We had one in 71. It was in February, and the weather was 12 below or something like this. And a combination of the fair weather, springtime, the clear air generally in springtime, and the fact that the eclipse will take place directly overhead, we um, uh, anticipate it to be all over the country, the eclipse of the decade, for that reason, probably. What I love about Dr. Sheridan in this clip is that, yeah, he's interested, but, ah. He's not that impressed. That's the, that's the feel I got from it. Like, well, this is cool, but, you know. Yeah, and he's been doing it for a long right. time. So it's like, yeah, it's yeah. pretty pretty cool, but I'm going to see a lot more. Yes. Yeah. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. Next week, oh, we're going to have the blues. There is an exhibit coming to... The Pryor Center yeah. building that will be open for the next month, but I'll have more on that next week. Okay. Thank you, Randy. See ya. The Momentary presents Freshgrass Bentonville, Friday and Saturday, May 20th and 21st. This bluegrass and progressive roots music festival welcomes Emmy Lou Harris and the Red Dirt Boys, Dispatch, Amos Lee, Margot Price, and more. TheMomentary.org for tickets and information. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Boonville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's program from inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors for this first weekday in May included Daniel Carruth, Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, and Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Our theme, titled First Hurrah, is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large with a brand new visit from the Middleton Grammarian and much more. You can always find past editions of our show at ozarksatlarge.com. If you missed yesterday's show, just ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large and you'll hear the most recent daily edition of our show. All right. Stay safe. Stay dry. Stay warm. I'm Kyle Kellums. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and seven. Thanks for your continued attention and support.